This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's interrupted by an angry phone call from David Plotz, who heard a rumor that I was leaving Slate. Were you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, welcome to The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, and we have the, the full team back in town, Ezra Klein, Sarah Cliff. It's amazing. It's it is party. exciting. It's great. We've got a lot of a lot of beverages around the table, some kind of I giant tea. How's your vacation, Ezra? Yeah, where did I go? Well, Weeds listed. Camping. <laughs> okay. camping. I, went, I went camping. My, my carefully constructed <laughs> away message blowing up on my podcast co-host. Just like, just like a small group. <laughs> Wasn't a lie. I was camping. Yeah, it sounds... You know what is not great? What? Camping. But you decided to go camping. Yeah, because I like the other parts of Burning Man, but the camping piece is not my favorite. I sometimes say that I enjoy camping, but the truth is I haven't done it no, in Matt 20 Iglesias years. Hates, we know from Slate Days that you hate the outside. You, I you don't have... like going outside in general. That is true. I think literally my favorite riff of yours <laughs> is that when people get richer, they never take rooms away from their house. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I like is I like campfires. That's, that's you, what you I'm about surprisingly good at making fires. Yes, yes. I, I got a perfect score on the Maine State Trip Leader ex- written exam. Um because wow. I, I have a great grasp of camping theory. My practice is a little <laughs> undermined by my dislike of being outside. But, you know, it's it's all there. This would be good. Uh, a good episode of The Weeds, but probably people didn't tune in for it. <laughs> Just camp, camp craft I've theory. I've kind of forgotten how to do this, so somebody else is going to have to lead. Speaking of campfires, <laughs> women are paid 79 cents on the dollar. So things are going well here on, yeah, on my return episode the, of The Weeds. Um, we took good care of the podcast yeah, when you were gone. this is great. So we're going to talk a bit about the gender wage gap here, and and Sarah's been doing great work on it. I want to set it up this way. There are two positions in the argument about the gender wage gap. There's this number that you always hear, that women make 79 cents for every dollar a man makes. And a lot of liberals take that and say, see, there's a gender wage gap, and that number is true. And then there is this response you hear, which is that, well, when you control for hours worked and what kinds of jobs people are in, the the gender wage gap begins to disappear, that there is something here that's really just a trick of statistics and that all you have to do is impose the proper controls on the number. And all of a sudden, it maybe doesn't totally disappear, but it becomes very, very small. And that really what you're seeing here is not a, a, a wage gap and definitely not gender discrimination, but is women deciding to work fewer hours, women deciding to go into different jobs, women deciding to leave the workforce at, at different points. And the and the answer then is there's nothing that needs to be done here. There's no problem. And this is right where you jumped in. So how are the people talking past each other? Or is one side right and one side is simply wrong here? Yeah, so you definitely see this focus on the statistic, the 79 cents on the dollar. And it's, it is an accurate statistic. It's comparing the median earnings of women who work full-time to the median earnings of men who work full-time but it's not super informative. Like it doesn't actually tell us much about why the wage gap exists or like what possible solutions might be. And so kind of in the middle of this argument, you know, one of the researchers I talked to a lot um, was this woman at Harvard, Claudia Golden. Who is great. Who's great. Who's super smart. She also has an amazing dog, Golden Retriever. Who, um, Wait, is it called Golden the Golden Retriever? It is not. It's called Pika. But Pika Golden. Pika Golden. And OK, I'll <laughs> stop talking, but I love dogs. My favorite fact about Pika Golden is it's, it's a champion smeller. It's like one smelling contest, like where it's like good at smelling out things. Wow. I didn't anyways, know there were those. There, those exist. Um, anyways, that's a detour into dogs. I cannot think of a contest. My dogs would not lose. 
Except barking at strangers. Yeah, mine would win the bark at the most trash trucks you can uh, contest. Um, anyway, so I think there's actually truth to both arguments, but it doesn't suggest there isn't a problem. So you definitely see, and I think, so one of the things I think that's important to understanding the wage gap is that kids play a huge role. Like having children is a major, major driver of the wage gap. There are these great graphs in Claudia Golden's work that show that the wage gap starts very small upon graduation, but then just gets bigger and bigger, especially in your like 20s and 30s. Can you go through that piece of research, though? Because that's a super interesting paper that you walk through. Yeah. So there is um, this paper that Claudia worked on with um, a few other economists where they studied about um, 2,000 graduates of um, the business school at University of Chicago and one of the things they show is that right when people graduate, they, they have really similar salaries. Women are earning $115,000. Men are earning one hundred thirty. There's a small wage gap, um, and it usually reflects that men came into business school with a little more education than women, a little more experience. You go out nine years, and the wage gap has gotten giant. Men are earning 60% more than women. I think the numbers are women are earning 250000 Men are earning 400000 This is nine years after oh, wow. graduate school. And this is all MBAs. This is all MBAs. Mm-hmm. And this is among the people who are still working full time. You've also, you know, like you're saying, you've had a lot of women leave the workforce. You've had some women switch to part time jobs. This is just looking at the people who are still working full time. I think one of the places where it gets like a little confusing and tricky and why you have the debate you were mentioning is it's definitely true. Women are making different decisions about their jobs, that more women are choosing to stay home. But there's also all these kind of larger pressures that make that the easier decision and make that the decision that that can make more sense. There's um, in the MBA study, the one I was just mentioning, one of the findings I found most fascinating was that women are men are penalized more for taking a big break from work than women. So if men take like a really long paternity leave, their salary goes down a larger amount than when women take maternity leave, huh. suggesting that like if you're in a couple and you know a guy's going to take the bigger hit for taking time off, it makes economic sense to for the woman to take more time off. Her salary will go down. And so kind of, either person will take a penalty. Yes. But a mom will take a smaller penalty. Right. Because it's kind of expected that the mom will take maternity leave. That's so interesting. And it's like so the actual penalties fall more on women because they take the leave. But like the hypothetical penalty right. would go the other way. So for the rare guy who takes the long leave, he'll face a larger penalty. So it kind of speaks to like, yes, it's a choice, but there are all these like factors like pushing women towards like making the choice of kind of stepping back. Matt, you've written something on this that I've thought about a lot. And I think it, it speaks to this, which is the way in which the controls here end up controlling for the thing yeah. you're trying to measure. Sometimes it's interesting to just do like a statistical test and say like our bosses just sitting around doing their salaries and being like, let's not pay the women at all. Um, And you do the statistical controls and it shows like that's not true, right? If you have a man and a woman who are like literally identical, right, like work the same hours, have worked the same hours throughout their entire careers, you know, blah, 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 like they tend to be treated similarly. Basically, motherhood carries an enormous uh, wage penalty, not just in terms of the time off, but, you know, when you come back. And this is where Golden's research shows that there's variance between occupations, right? She uses pharmacists as her, yes. as her key example of a job that is based on pretty pure shift work, right. even though it isn't like unskilled labor. A, a lot of shift work is associated with like minimum wage fast food and gigs. And one that's important because it's changed. It kind of shows the possibility that like you can eliminate wage gaps by right. by changing the structure of work. Because if you think like 
40 years ago, being a pharmacist wasn't shift work. Like you had, you had like, you know, Mr. Smith's little pharmacy. Can, can you just say what shift work is? Yeah, so, so shift work means you work a certain number of hours and that the, the workers are essentially interchangeable. Right. So like if you need to like not show up Wednesday and somebody else covers for you, like right. it's fine. Everybody gets paid the same amount of money versus jobs. I think she emphasizes the idea of, of jobs that involve client work. Mm-hmm. Um, but but various other tasks were like you would want one not like someone to be available at whatever time, but one particular person to be available at at one particular time, right? So like a fancy lawyer, his clients want to be able to get access to him mm-hmm. when they need him, and it would be considered at least by tradition, like odd if you're a big-time client at a big-time law firm and call up and you just like get someone else because they're on duty. Whereas we take it for granted that if you go to CVS and you need to get a prescription filled, there should be somebody there at the mm-hmm. counter. Like at the hours they say there will be somebody working at the counter, but it's not your business. Who? Mm-hmm. And this is a industry that's changed. So it kind of shows an industry where the structure of work changes and the gender gap falls. So back in the 70s, pharmacists had a really big gender wage gap. I think women earned like 60 to 70 percent of what men did. And then you see this change in pharmacies where instead of like, you know, having these mom and pop shops, it's CVS and they have, you know, 10 pharmacists to work in their pharmacy instead of like Mr. Smith, the pharmacist who kind of it has to be there to open the pharmacy. And then you see the gender wage gap. So according to Golden's work, pharmacy now has the smallest wage gap of kind of a high-paying professions, that women in pharmacy are 92% of what men are earning. And this wasn't true a few decades ago. And it's pretty good evidence for her theory about the wage gap that you know, a lot of it has to do with how we structure jobs. And the jobs that you know, allow for more interchangeability are the ones where you can, where you can eliminate wage gaps or you know, at least drive them down a lot. So, so let me ask this in terms of kind of stating it as a premise, right? I, I think that the crude version of the 79 cents on the dollar term is to say that the gender wage gap is a function of workplaces discriminating against women when it comes to salary negotiations. And what you're saying is that the research suggests that gender wage gap is primarily a function of the work world being set up to reward, to favor the schedules that men are able to keep. And that for reasons of societal expectations, for reasons of biology and so on, women often are not. Yeah, I think that's pretty close to where where I came to be. And I think so it's when you get to like this area of like societal expectations. I think that's where you get to the question of, well, is the wage gap real? Like women could choose to stay in the workforce. They could choose to go up against societal expectations. And some some women do. And you probably see more of a shift of that happening right now. On the other side, I'd argue there are certain things like women literally cannot like switch the task of having babies. Like that is not an option. And like that is obviously going to be something that women are going to take more time out than men. So, you know, is I guess there is the choice to have children. But, you know, if you are someone who wants to have children, like that is always going to be a burden that's going to fall on the woman and not on the man. And, you know, when you look at households where two parents work, it's still very true that women are doing the majority of like child rearing, of keeping the house clean. Like if you look at there's a good Pew survey of um, couples where both parents are working and you routinely see like about half the women saying like I do the majority of the childcare, I do the majority of housework, 
I do the majority. Like if the kid was sick, it would usually be my responsibility. And then you see maybe like 30% who are say they split the responsibility equally and like five to six percent of dads who say like I'm the primary person who does that. So you have like this small fraction where the relationship is the guy who is doing more. But now the expectation is really, you know, that that the woman is going to be the one who is going to do more. And it factors into how job negotiations might go for for women, where you might see if you're interviewing people, your expectation is going to be that a woman in her 40s who has kids might be you know, less committed to being there all the time than a man who has the same resume. And that might have nothing to do with their actual commitment. But the perception that kind of grows out of that is that you know women are going to work shorter hours, and that might put them in a disadvantage, like trying to get into the high-paying role to begin with. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. This is actually a good bridge to the question of, well, what is to be done? Because uh, on the one hand, I think it, it is clear this is actually a problem, right? The, the fact that it is mediated by choices people make, by societal expectations, by by the sheer fact that it is still the case. As you say, because I think this almost can't be emphasized enough, in two earner households, including households where both the man and the women work similar number of hours, women still do the overwhelming majority of uh, child care and home, and home care. And that is a big deal. <laughs> and and, and it's, a real, it's a real problem within the economy. But what this doesn't lend itself to is an easy solution. I think that when you're thinking about the premise as the problem is workplaces are full of discrimination, well, we've had laws before that basically what you do is you say you're not allowed to discriminate. And while that doesn't solve the problem, it does to some degree give you a legal tool to address the problem. But here you're talking about a structure that people are – Involved in to some degree voluntarily, to some degree traditionally, to some degree historically, to some degree it's just how these institutions and professions have evolved over very long periods of time. And it's a lot harder to fix. And so you've had this year both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump or at least Donald Trump's campaign coming out and saying, you know, we're going to fix this. But it isn't clear to me that they have a way to fix it. Um, and, and the kinds of solutions they tend to put forward, which tend to focus on the discrimination case, are, are pretty underpowered. Now, with the Clinton campaign, I do think you have a much deeper set of ideas about how to restructure certain social supports 
to make working easier for mothers. I think it's something Clinton is pretty attuned to. But I am I'm not sure how you would close the whole gap. So so I guess my question to sharpen that uh, considerably is do you think this can be solved? So I think there are kind of like two buckets of solutions that you can look at. One is changing the structure of work and one is creating programs that make it easier for women to fit into the existing structure. And I think like both of these have benefits and drawbacks, but you know, I think eventually the actual structure of work will need to change. And that's something that's like very hard for the government to work on. It's harder for them to implement programs that kind of like change, like, you know, make workers more interchangeable. Those are things that are like harder for the government to get into. I don't think they're as impossible as they seem, because I think, right, you know, one of like my kind of knee-jerk reactions listening to this was like, even in my job, like, if when I'm a healthcare reporter, like, I need to be the one who talks to my sources, like, how, how can my job change? Like, how can a lot of jobs change? And I think, you know, it's not always intuitive how it's going to happen. But there is, you know, aside from like the president or like, you know, CEOs of companies, there's still a lot of space to think about making those changes. And there's a lot of really interesting research from people who study kind of how work works that um, suggests that these like long hours that we've come to value, like aren't actually that valuable, that there's really like a limit to how much work you can actually get done in a week. Um, There's one great Harvard Business Review study that found bosses couldn't tell the difference between someone who worked 70 hours a week and someone who pretended to work 70 hours a week. <laughs> so it suggests like, you know, I think we've become like very wedded to these ideas of like long hours and like putting in the work and like that's the way you're going to be successful. I think that's actually more malleable than we expect that I think one of the new jerk reactions is like, well, the people who, who work longer should be rewarded more and like they are doing a better job. And I don't think that's actually true. So I think there are like two types of solutions here. One is changing the actual structure of work, basically like what happened in the pharmacy, seeing that help happen elsewhere. And the other is changing like all the things around work to make it easier for women to like fit into the work structure that that we've created and that we use right now. You know, I I would also say I I do think that there's some low-hanging policy fruit. So like one thing is that uh, we have schools where most children are most days. Um, But the schools operate on, like, many fewer days than normal workplaces operate. Some of that is, like, a summer vacation, which there's an interesting policy debate about whether summer vacation is a good idea or not. Uh, But one thing the government could do is that if the schools are going to be closed for a couple months at a time, there could be something that is provided by the public sector as, like, an official organized activity. Um, Also, other little things like there's no school on Veterans Day. um, And if you work for the government in a non-school context, you probably also get Veterans Day and Columbus Day off, but like normal people don't. Um, So those are little things that create these like, oops, like who's who's watching the kid today, you know, kinds of kinds of scenarios for people. It doesn't exhaust like the demand for flexibility on the part of mothers, but it it adds to it that we treat it as just like, okay, that like the government provided childcare facilities that we do have just like vanish at arbitrary moments, according to like the vagaries of the agricultural calendar and and union negotiations. Um, 
Similarly, I think all of the Clinton campaign's proposals around daycare and preschool, you know, would help fill a, a fair number of, of these gaps. There's probably even more around the healthcare space. I mean, my experience as a parent of a toddler is that where the rubber really hits the road in terms of this stuff is like when the kid wakes up with a high fever, because then like all your childcare goes out the window and something, you know, kind of has to be done. Then I would say a little bit of field, but on the the labor market side, it seems to me that labor unions generally try to encourage workplaces to adopt this kind of like widgetization Mm -hmm. of labor so that they can uh, give people like step and ladder compensation structures. And that's not for the purpose of, you know, promoting gender equity in the workplace. But when Golden talks about like pharmacists, compensation structure, it sounds a lot like a sort of, you know, mid-century factory, you know, that you think of as being a very male-dominated workplace and certainly not something that they set up so that people could take care of sick children. But like that's exactly the spirit of it, right, that people have defined roles that more than one person could play and that the like whole operation of the factory hinges on somebody being there in the assembly line, but it doesn't actually matter who. And then last is the scale of business enterprises, right? I mean, I think a lot of elements of our political culture like to romanticize small firms, um, and we often will give them a special break on regulation and say, you know, uh, well, you know, because we've got to encourage these like mom and pop operations. And I think you see across a whole range of, of literature that like it's actually quite bad for workers to – I mean, not that, like, it's bad that people can have a small company, but to actually bias the economy to small companies leads to lower wages and it leads to inflexibility. I mean, this is part of the point about pharmacists, right? That, like, if it's Joe's pharmacy, then, like, Joe really has to be there and you have a, a kind of a problem. But, like, CVS, the giant nationwide enterprise, can schedule people on shifts. It can have someone, you know, go to the 17th Street location instead of the 14th Street location and and go do things. Um, Obviously, we have plenty of big companies as it is, but like we're constantly doing things, I think, to slightly reward smallness that don't make sense. I think a ton of this also has to do with the structure of the workday. And and, and it goes to your point about widgetization. So this is something that actually changed in Vox. When we launched, I don't want to get this wrong and I don't think I am, I don't think that we had anyone on staff with children on the day we We launched no two years later we have much of our staff has children (laughs) we have friday baby day in our slack and it's all adorable and 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 matt is a child and and it's all great and the primary thing that i've noticed and we've put a lot of thought into how to make sure we are a family-friendly workplace how to make sure you know if you're just thinking about it in a very sort of crude way how do we retain all that talent because these are a lot of great people and we don't want to lose them and the main thing i think you've seen as an adaptive response is a lot more flexibility on when you can work uh and people getting work done at times of the day that are shifted from when some of their other uh colleagues are getting work done and and Matt you could maybe speak to this more more clearly than i can but i definitely noticed after you became a father you getting more work done in extremely early morning hours just cuz you were up earlier <laughs> yeah uh, and well- but I think that stuff is important and not having a overly rigid view. And, and obviously not all workplaces can support this, but the degree to which you can be flexible and when people actually produce their work seems to me to be an important dimension of whether you're able to make space for people to have somewhat unpredictable family commitments. Yeah, I mean, definitely to the extent that you have like bang away at a computer type jobs – 
which we certainly do. You know, if you can let parents like little babies go to bed early, but then you can't leave them alone in the house. So to the extent that you can have people leaving earlier to like see their kid when he's awake and then I'm never have plans at night so I can can wrap things up later. Um, You know, that's like, that's great. Uh, I do think what's interesting about zooming in on the business school students, because I I think there's something refreshingly like unintersectional about some of Golden's analysis on this, because it speaks to like why women are disadvantaged, particularly women with children, are disadvantaged in like very elite occupations, Mm -hmm. right? Like the women in the Chicago business school study are still making a lot of money, yeah. right? So, like, on the one hand, it's like, okay, this is not, like, the greatest case of suffering in the world. On the other hand, I think it does matter because it's, like, an endlessly reinscribing pattern if there are, like, almost no women Fortune 500 CEOs and no women on boards of directors. And then it's like, well, we have a structure of workplaces that's not friendly to women and chickens and, and eggs and and whatnot. It does speak to in a lot of these kind of elite fields that are not like internet hot takes, that we have an expectation, not necessarily that like you will be working for 100 hours a week, but that you will be available Mm -hmm. to work all of the time, right? That like you could be doing whatever, but like if your phone rings, you're going to pick it up. If there's an emergency, you're going to take care of it right away. And some of that is like the nature of like executive leadership and really does just require changes like inside family dynamics. It's difficult for me to imagine a CEO married to another CEO (laughs) raising three kids because like how family friendly could the workplaces get? I think you get a nanny at that point and that's that's how you do it. Or like seven, right? (laughs) Right. Um, But like until there is a larger number of fathers who are like primary caregivers, it's just exceptionally difficult to see a much larger number of women at like the very top of of business careers to me. Yes, I think at the very top, like you need to be someone who who is able to pick up the phone all the time. But that's also like a very small minority. Like, you know, in any company for the person at the very top, you have like you're not any company, but large companies, the person at the very top, you have hundreds, thousands of people lower down where you might have this kind of culture of like, being available all the time, always answering your phone. I think it'll have to come from basically top talent, like demanding that flexibility. Like it's interesting, like what Ezra is saying, like to put it in business terms, like you want to make the workplaces more flexible. It's like you have smart women who work for you or who have become moms and like you don't want them to leave. And I think and, that's... And, and men who have become parents. And men who have become parents, yeah. Um, like I like Matt. We're yeah, not that smart. Yeah, we'll keep, we'll keep Matt around. Um but I think that's like where the change happens. And like mm-hmm. it's interesting, like you were talking about it kind of on a micro level, but I think this is true in other areas as well. Like I think the change is not going to necessarily – the change might happen with like a, a female CEO. And like I think we've talked about this before. Like President Clinton might come into the White House and like kind of set a White House policy that makes it easier to balance work and life. But I think kind of another force pushing on that is – talented people who kind of want more of that balance and are, are like going to leave for a firm that's going to offer it if they don't mm-hmm. get it at the place that they're at right now. And I think that is kind of like the cruder, you know, business side that will push towards this and possibly will become like a stronger force as you see like shifts in, in gender relations within individual relationships when you have like both 
men and women like valuing that as a workplace benefit, like just like you would with health insurance or like the other things that you get. Like that's where companies might have to think seriously about like kind of moving in this more flexible kind of flexible hours or like interchangeable workers model. So So the other dimension of this that I just think is worth bringing into the conversation a bit. One way to restate a lot of what we've been saying here is that we as a society, as an economy, do not financially value the work of child rearing really at all. Um, there, There are some minor tax credits and so forth scattered throughout the tax code, but we have this pursuit that we know is incredibly difficult, is incredibly laborious, is incredibly time-consuming, is on some level even dangerous to your health. And we know that it takes you out of the workforce for a period of time and ends up having a lifelong penalty on your wages. And we think that it is a really important part of being human, of having a country, of having a workforce in the future. But it's actually somewhat incredible given its centrality to our conception and literal continuation of ourselves, how little we actually do to reward it. And we've been talking about this, I think, in terms of indirectly simply making it less penalizing to do. But if you look into more radical policy solutions and and policy thinking, which have been around over the years, you know, we don't treat raising children as a job. And, and and not just that, but we actually actively pull people away from it. We had, I think, a, a good discussion of welfare reform on this program uh, maybe two months ago. And something we talked a lot there is how we took a program where its initial idea was to make it possible for women to leave the workforce so they could raise children and they didn't have to be spending their time in work and reversed the program's polarity entirely to be pushing single mothers back into the workforce because we thought it was somehow fundamentally uh, not right for them to be just being at home raising children. And I don't have a a solution or a proposal here, but I do just want to raise this as a point that behind a lot of this is a implicit and and at times like in welfare reform, explicit value we've decided to, to lace through our public policy that we are not going to put an economic value on child raising. Right. And I mean, you know, there even there used to be, right, a concept of like a family wage, right? And that there should be positive wage discrimination in favor of fathers, right? With the assumption that like child rearing would be the full time work of married women, but that they should be their husbands should be paid a kind of implicit bonus. Right. Right. And that was that was part of a social a mid-century social consensus that had some deeply misogynistic elements to it but also had like the continuation of the nation as like a clear priority and then in the 60s and 70s we tried to like pivot off some of the gender inegalitarian aspects of that consensus but have i think like muddied the waters as to whether we want there to be a new generation of Americans, or do we treat it the way we treat? Um, like many people own dogs, right? And it's financially yes, burdensome to you. take care Indeed. of dogs. It you, is. I hear people, you know, there all, all these the same kinds of issues arise. You might need to leave to walk the dog. You might need to pay a dog walker. Dogs get sick. Blah blah blah. But I think we have a fairly firm social consensus that the dog is a discretionary consumer item. 
Sure. Right. And that it's not like. In fact, I tell Patsy and Calvin that almost every night. <laughs> right. Before they go to sleep. You're I the say, cutest oh, discretionary you, swimming you, you item. You sleep well, you discretionary consumer <laughs> items. But, you know, so if, if somebody said in an Internet forum somewhere, well, you shouldn't have a dog if you can't afford it. I think everyone would say like, OK, that is the kind of thing that you would say. You you hear that sometimes in, in Internet forums about people talking about the, the financial cost of of childcare, you will get an angry thread after that, right? There is like a real profound disagreement like running through America as to whether having a child is like getting a dog or whether it's like, I don't know what, you know, like service to to human society, right? And the people who are in the service to society camp are themselves split between uh, religious traditionalists who want society to be more supportive of stay-at-home moms and of, like, old-school families and of, like, family-friendly feminists who wanted to be more supportive of of working and and, and things like that. So there's a a sort of very fractured politics around, like, are we saying people should be having children or are we saying it's their problem if if they want to? (laughs) And I think you know, some of the structural stuff, it actually it goes back to where we were starting about this question of like, well, is it Burning it, Man? <laughs> I don't think you're supposed to bring kids to Burning Man. I've never been. People but my, do, in fact. Really? Yeah, yeah. That seems unsafe. It does. Uh, <laughs> there was um, this great book I read when I was um, researching this article um, by the economist Heather Bushy called Finding Time where she kind of writes about how how we had this structure 50 years ago where, you know, everyone at work had this invisible partner who just, like, made shit happen. And that was, like, the wife who stayed at home. And it kind of, like, speaks to what you're raising, this idea of, like, a family wage. So we had this structure, and, like, it worked. Like, the jobs we had, like, in the structure of work we have right now, like, totally worked when you had someone whose job was to, like, make sure the kids were okay and, like, make sure the house was clean and all of that. And so what you have, like, right now is we have a structure of job we built that relied on these, like, invisible partners that are no longer invisible that are now out at their own jobs. So I think you know, that's, like, another factor, you know, I think about. We say, like, is it a choice or not? I, I think it matters that women are pushing against a structure that, like, was not built for them, that a structure of job where they were kind of expected to be staying at home, where they weren't expected to be in the workforce. And I think those historical things that you come into the workforce now with like 50 years later like those those matter those those are not irrelevant to you know coming into the workforce right now so I, I think that's something else you know when I think about this like well is it a choice or is it like pure discrimination I think the history of work kind of factors into how women are treated in the workplace now and kind of the expectations that they also have at home they're kind of this like legacy of how we got the structure of work that we have, you know, in the first place. I, I would love to hear a little bit more from you on that book because uh, so Heather Boucher just yeah. became. Oh, I Hillary pronounced Clinton's. the wrong name wrong. Will <laughs> uh, will we'll, maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. Um, Heather Boucher just became Hillary Clinton's one of her top economic advisors on the transition team. Was it Matt? I didn't even yes, know that she is the the chief economist to the Hillary Clinton transition team. There it is. And so finding time, and so I think it's pretty clear she's going to be influential in the in the Clinton administration if that comes to pass. I should interview her. Yeah, you should. Uh, <laughs> what did you think of the book as a policy blueprint kind of document? Was I, it actionable in that way? So there are policy proposals in it. And like, you know, I think they revolve a lot around like increasing childcare access. The thing I found most interesting about her book was kind of the laying out of the problem, like mm-hmm. this idea 
it wasn't like, you know, once I thought about it, I'm like, of course, that makes sense. But kind of the idea that we built the structure of work we have now around this environment where where you had someone staying at home and taking care of kids. I thought that was like a helpful way to think of like, well, why is this a problem? I think so. One of the places where you do see Heather differ from Claudia is like Heather's Heather Heather's book ends in a number of policy prescriptions. Like, here's what the government can do. Here's how we should fix it. When I talked to Claudia Golden at Harvard about this, she has very little faith in government interventions to fix this. Her view is that, for example, um, you know, generous maternity leave policies, like those are a pro-children policy. They're not necessarily a pro-woman policy. By giving women more generous maternity leave than men or giving everyone the same amount of maternity leave, but women tending to take it more, you're actually setting women back. Like you're setting women up to have a longer break in their professional career and therefore like lower salaries down the line. So, you know, her view is like some of these policies that we generally think of as like pro-women can have these unintended consequences of kind of pulling women out of the workforce. And so she generally has very little faith in government programs. So, you know, when I was talking about those two buckets of solutions, either changing the structure of the job or changing the programs around the job to fit into the structure, Heather's very much in like create more programs to fit people into the structure of jobs we have right now. Whereas um, Claudia Golden is more on the side of like blow up the structure of jobs and like make a structure of jobs that will work better for both genders. So that's kind of like an interesting divide in the economics of how you how you address these problems. And you'd kind of expect someone who thinks like the government can help fix this will end up on on the Clinton transition team. There's a, a great study that they want to talk about today that's come from a, a professor named Stephen Rogers. at. Uh, it's amazing his time to do that when he spent so much time being Captain America. Yes. In his in his <laughs> secret identity, he is a political scientist at St. Louis University. <laughs> and he, he goes by Stephen rather than Steve just to keep it covert. Um, yeah, but he can't fool us. No, I, I saw right through it. Um, and, you know, he's he's looking at state legislative elections and basically what's the deal with them because we know the if worst you, if, joke if you ever. know about american politics you are aware that collectively the 50 state governments and their 99 houses of state legislature do a lot of stuff um, and also that there is a very very large number of individual human beings who make up the state legislatures and you probably don't know anything about any of them including it's tricky if you live in D.C., but if you're out there in the country, uh, consider that like you are an American politics super fan if you are listening to this show and like ask yourself, do you know the <laughs> names of your state legislatures? Do you know the names of the people who are running against them in November? The answer is almost certainly no, right? And so you might think optimistically that there is some like magic happening. There's some like ghost in the machine that is making this right and somebody else is paying attention um and and what his study shows pretty clearly is that that is not the case that <laughs> state legislative election outcomes are driven overwhelmingly by the approval rating of the incumbent president of the United States that you know people who like the president vote for state legislators of their same party people who don't vote the other way thanks to gerrymandering the vast majority of incumbents get reelected anyway, but the swings are driven by swings in national public opinion, not at all by individual things the legislators are doing or saying, uh, even though the issues confronting state and national government are quite different. And in particularly important, I think, even though the sort of context 
you know, is completely different from place to place, but it's simply challenging in Oklahoma to put together any kind of like, I'm a Democrat and I'm running for state legislature. Like even if you wanted to be like idiosyncratically conservative on any number of issues or the guy you were running against is like a real moron and there's like nothing you can do to get over the fact that people in Oklahoma like really don't like President Obama because there's no way they're going to pay any attention to to what you're doing. And then he goes through some of the sort of micro of this. Um, there's no media coverage of state legislators or, or their races. Um, those of us who write on the Internet know that whatever media coverage there is of state politics is not being read by anybody. Um, so it's likely to only kind of decline. Um, we've seen that there have been big cutbacks by news organizations in the number of reporters that they kind of have in state capitals um, and that, you know, voters have very little information about any of this stuff. So, you know, of course, they're voting on on broad national trends. Um, so this is all it, it's not exactly shocking, I guess, if you introspect on it. But if you look at like the setup of the American constitutional system, it's like kind of scandalous, right? There's this like big void. At, at what's supposed to be the heart of American democracy, where the like workhorses of the system of federalism and checks and balances are total unknowns who are being voted in and out of office for no reason. So I have a couple of questions on this because it, as you say, I think that if you think through this result, it isn't shocking, but it does offend my intuitions in a couple of ways. So one way in which I thought there was a ghost in the machine is I thought state and local politics were simply much more heavily driven by institutional support, which is to say that whereas in presidential elections and Senate elections and House elections, I think that you often do have a populist dimension where a candidate can, using media both earned and free, appeal to the voters and overwhelm the the political machine, so to speak, uh, Donald Trump being the, the er example of this. But I think you have much smaller examples all the time. My sense of the state legislature situation was it, it was just much more important, depending on, on where you were, who the local power forces ended up choosing. And that that all worked through much more of a machine dimension than today, uh, than more national kinds of politics do. I don't think this study necessarily says that isn't true, but it suggested that isn't the dominant effect. If it were the dominant effect, um, I'm not sure I'd be as worried. I'm not saying that I want uh, folks chosen in that way, but it is a way for people to be chosen by folks who have granted a rooting interest, but also a fair amount of expertise and interest in in the workings of a state legislature. So how does this study interact with that theory? I think the clearest way you can say it is that – Clearly, in the absence of media coverage, sort of local elite types are exercising enormous influence over nominations mm -hmm. so that things like anything you might say about the presidential election, like that doesn't matter, like newspaper endorsements or like some random electricians union, that's all going to matter in these primaries because nobody has any information at all about what's going on. So like anything anyone is doing is probably making a difference there. And you do see, I mean, separate from this, um, that one 
effect of clean elections type laws, like public financing type things uh, that they have in Arizona and in Maine, is to create uh, both more more like populism and more ideological divergence, whereas traditional fundraising structures encourage a lot of uh, boring, uh, moderate-ish kind of state legislators. But what Rogers is looking at is general election outcomes, you know, where he's showing that only 33 percent of state legislators face challenges at all. Um, so they're mostly that's actually shocking, right? So they're mostly just getting getting reelected on autopilot, um, and that the primary thing that puts you at risk as a legislator who faces a challenge is being of the same party as an unpopular incumbent president, right? So that what sort of local like elites, political uh, operators are doing uh, may make a big difference in terms of. What happens after the election? Right. So, for example, I mean, one thing we saw in in 2010, especially, is that Obama was unpopular. So Republicans won lots and lots of state legislative seats and anti-abortion groups are very, very uh, organized and active and influential in state politics. So even though it would be hard to have detected that abortion was like a leading issue in American politics in October 2010, lots and lots of those Republicans who won election that fall had very strong commitments to the abortion issue. And there was, uh, Sarah's written a a bunch about it, but just like an enormous wave of state-level anti-abortion legislation unleashed in in 2011. And that's, that's because of the nexus of these two things. But what definitely did not happen was a massive shift in public opinion about state-level abortion policy. What we had was a massive shift in public opinion about Obama combined with um, candidate recruitment by uh, anti-abortion groups to make sure that's not the reason Republicans won, but the particular Republicans who did win were like very jazzed up to go do something about this. You said only 30 percent of state legislators have challengers? 33 percent, he says. That seems like an even bigger issue than like the what's happening with these elections like it's the fact we that you have you know two-thirds that are running unchallenged seems like almost more of like this threat for most people who have a state legislator like they're probably not going to be voting on that state legislator when they vote in november like this is not even going to be like a decision that is happening Um, but i mean think of like how many house members not just like a, a nominal challenger, right? But when if you, Guess. If, you if you talk to the people at, at DCCC or, or the Republican equivalent, whose acronym I forget, how many of their like battlegrounds are there? It's way less than thirty three. Sure, so, but right? there's so many more seats, and it's like so much easier to field a challenge to like a state legislator. Like you don't sure. need as much infrastructure. Like maybe it's harder. Like you're like there's more party machinery at work. But at the same point, like you're talking about like a small small geographic area for like making this challenge. There is this incredibly important middle layer of American policymaking that if you just step back from it, it's working incredibly badly, right? It is non-competitive. The ways in which it is competitive are actually dysfunctional and somewhat irrational. And it leaves you in a place that I think one should be worried. One should be worried about what is happening in state legislatures because this isn't a sensible way for it to work. Now, it's worth saying that even at the national level, I always forget the the number here, but I think it's somewhere between 90 and 94 percent of House members are reelected. Yeah. Like the, the overwhelmingly likely case for a House member running for reelection is that they will be reelected. American politics is simply a lot less competitive on a year-to-year basis than I think people intuit. You know, and it's not as if what is happening is a strong intra-party competition, if you have a sort of bad 
Democrat in California, a member of the state legislature, it isn't that likely that the party is going to try to oust them simply because that might in some uh, tail risk way put the seat at risk and all of a sudden signal weakness to the other side. So it actually the fact that it is such an advantageous position to have an incumbent in a seat is something that reduces the party's incentives to watch its own members effectively and, 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 and try to make sure it has the best possible representation in any given space. But I, I do think this stuff is worrying and I, I think that it leaves you in a place where I don't think there's a, an obvious policy solution here. It's the kind of thing that if you care about government and governance outcomes, it should probably oper, uh, occupy quite a bit more of your mind space, of our mind space, than it does. Well, and, you know, I think these bodies really matter. Like they actually, unlike Congress, which passes very little policy, and <laughs> I think we've talked about this here before, you know, the state houses are actually doing like real work that affects actual people. Like right. when you look at the states that aren't expanding Medicaid, Mostly that's because, like, the state legislators don't want to expand Medicaid or, like Matt mentioned, you've had more anti-abortion laws passed in the last, what is it, the last three years than the last three decades. Like, they are really changing the way things work on the ground. Um, and the study kind of reminds me of, um, it was one of my friends who's a healthcare reporter who was in Texas who was, like, talking to someone who didn't have Medicaid, who, you know, because Texas isn't expanded Medicaid. And... um the guy was just, like, railing on Obama. He was like, this is Obamacare. Like, why can't I get Obamacare? It was, like, an interesting, like, individual person. Like, he didn't really look at the state legislature, like, as the problem, even though they were the ones kind of blocking his health care. He just kind of looked at Obamacare as, like, clearly the thing that was not working for him, which kind of, like, speaks to some of the kind of attitudes that seem to be picked up in this study. Well, and, I mean, it does speak to the when you're thinking about federal policy design, right? I mean, I think that... Um, members of Congress genuinely think that they find the idea of leaving something up to the states mm -hmm. on some level to be like appealing. And it is worth thinking hard about that, right? I mean, if you're saying you want something left up to the states because you're deliberately trying to sabotage it, I think sometimes people don't want to say we don't want there to be any regulation of air pollution. So instead, they'll say we should leave it up to the states, knowing that that will create a race to the bottom for jobs. And like, <laughs> that's fine. There's like there's room for cynicism in the political process. But if you are thinking that delegating a policymaking function, like designing your entire Medicaid benefits package to state government is going to lead to better outcomes because the state policymakers are closer to the people and more directly accountable, you're just making a mistake. Like I think it, this is a super yeah. important point that, that some of the very idealistic and useful and to me certainly appealing features of federalism are called into question here. This idea that the government that governs best is the one closest to the people, for instance, one way to refashion the study or reframe the study is to say that state legislatures, despite in some ways literally being closer to the people in that they have you know smaller constituencies and when they travel to go work at the state house, they're not traveling as far as say an Ohio member of Congress is traveling to come work in Washington, D.C. They actually do not know the people better. They know the people worse. They have less of a relationship with the voters. In fact, much less of a relationship with the voters in informational sense than the president does, than a member of the U.S. Senate does. And that 
should worry you because if we know anything about elected officials, it is that they try to appeal to their core constituencies. And what this implies is that the core constituencies for state legislators are very, 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 very small. And some of them are high information in terms of local interest groups and so forth. And some of them that are very, very low information and aren't paying any attention at all. But this idea of a much more idealized form of policymaking that takes local concerns much more into account and has a much more two-way relationship with the constituency it is trying to serve is fantasy. To throw a, a sort of wild, you know, suggestion for maybe improving this out there, uh, David Schleicher from Yale Law School has written a, a lot on not on this empirical aspect of it, but on, like how it should impact our, our political theory. And he points to uh, Canada, which has a number of uh, aspects of its election law that encourage state part provincial parties to be different from national parties, so that. If you go to an election in Quebec, right, it will pit the Parti Québécois against what's called the Quebec Liberal Party. And the Quebec Liberal Party does not have a institutional affiliation with the federal Liberal Party. And then other provinces, you know, you have different kinds of alignments so that in Alberta, which is a very conservative province, you have kind of a far right party as well as a right party and then a left party. And probably the people who vote for Wild Rose and the people who vote for the Alberta conservatives probably all vote for the same like federal candidates. But in Alberta politics, they distinguish themselves. And this all has a way of slightly increasing the salience of like, what's actually happening. There's a kind of cycle on this in the news industry where people would be like, it's terrible. They're closing down the state bureaus. And they'd be like, well, they're closing down the state bureaus because no one's reading the articles. And then it's like, uh, who knows, right? We throw up our hands. Um, you can't make people care, but you can at least do a little bit to like jog their memory that these are actually different people running for different offices with like a different set of issues by trying to encourage the parties to like not have the same names, not have the same logos, not co-locate their offices. Because right now, like the Arizona Democratic Party is just like trying to get Hillary Clinton elected president, which is great. Obviously, the presidential election is important, but also the state government of Arizona is important. And they also try to win those elections, but there's in just enormous vertical integration, right? And the hope of every reddish state Democratic Party is that the presidential campaign will decide to make a big organizing push there and try to turn it into a battleground, not that they will develop a like coherent local agenda that is addressing the actual residents of the state, like where they are ideologically with some kind of ideas for improving uh, local conditions. And that's a real mismatch between like the constitutional system that we have and then the, the party system that's emerged from it. All right. All right. With that, it's been a pleasure talking about these weedsy matters. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you to our sponsors, uh, to our producer, Afim Shapiro. The Weeds is a, what is it? A Vox Lacom and Panoply podcast. That's what it is. That's the yes. one. Thank you. We will see you next week, possibly on wireless earphones.